We are proud to bring you this presidential podcast with superstar deliriumologist Professor Watney, which covers everything from paradoxes and delirium research and practices to synergies that may lead one day to new discoveries in the field. We learn about Lev's favourite biomarker, personal research journey, and why he is a splumper and not a superhero. Lastly, he explains as to why we should all make the journey to sunny Birmingham in September for the EBA Congress and what he really thinks about Australia. Brought to you in proud association with the Australasian Delirium Association, we bring you the first inaugural Delirium Unbound. Okay, welcome everybody to the first ever episode of Delirium Unbound. My name is Andrew Tirochuk. And I am a delirium working at the Prince Charles Hospital. I have with me Eamon Eels, also a deliriumologist and geriatrician physician working here at the Prince Charles Hospital. And welcome to the podcast. Um, delirium Unbound, essentially, what we're doing is we are interviewing other delirium enthusiasts from all around the world to learn about good delirium practice, education, and research. And it's an absolute pleasure today to have all the way from Norway, uh, Professor Lieb Otto Vanni. Um, so Lieb is a president of the European Delirium Association, a geriatrician, and also the lead of the Oslo Delirium Lab. Um, he's over here in Australia on a sabbatical working at the University of New South Wales, a Gideon Kaplan's team, uh, and he's recently just popped over to Brisbane. So first of all, welcome, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. Such an honour to be here in uh, Brisbane and on the first ever Delirium podcast, I think. No, absolutely. It's, it's great to have you here. Um, how, how do you find Australia? Uh, very good. Uh, my only criticism so far that it's harder to be a pedestrian here compared to what I'm used to in Norway. Oh. Oh. No progress without criticism, so thank you very much, <laughs> Lee. Okay, so we have a question that we ask all of our interviewed deliriumologists. 100% of them. 100% <laughs> of them. Uh, and as you know, delirium is about superheroes. Um, uh, the first question really for our audience is, what superpower do you think that they must possess to really practice good, effective delirium care what would your your word of kind of superpower advice be in this in this space mm. um, uh, no, I, I think you don't need a superpower to be honest it's possible to prevent delirium uh, without uh, any uh, superpower abilities and uh, delirium Delirium prevention and care has improved, but it's still possible to pick some low-hanging fruits. Um, yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much for, for that answer. So just thinking about delirium care, how does delirium practice look like in, in Norway at the present moment? Hmm. How, how, how's Norway travelling as a country? Has there been an improvement in awareness recently? Or yeah, I think so. Definitely, it has been improved, and the progress started uh, 10, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, a 
least I remember when I first started to do clinical medicine, uh, clinical work myself, I was not compared, not prepared to, uh, that I would meet so much confused patients. That was not, I was not prepared for that for medical school. But now I, I happen to teach medicine at the same school that I studied medicine. And now the medical students, they are, they really know quite a bit about the delirium even before they finish uh, medical uh, school. So that has improved the last 10, 15 years. And the pandemic helped a lot also because it really put delirium in the spotlight. So now the last couple of years, there's much more focus on delirium than it, than it uh, used to be. Um, yeah. So it's interesting you say that about the pandemic the silver lining, obviously, the pandemic, COVID delirium is something which is very hard to treat and, you know, it's difficult because patients' relatives weren't allowed in. Can you expand a bit more on that silver lining because that's not always intuitive in a sense. What, what, how, what, what's it done to the delirium community? How's it galvanised where we're going? Uh, I thought, uh, so there was obviously a lot of delirium in, in uh, COVID patients uh, and it was not so pricing because they had, uh, they were infectious, they had an infection, they had hypoxemia. But since everything, since the pandemic was the overwhelmingly largest topic for the whole society, and delirium was such a big part of COVID, ultimately delirium was also a big, it was, it was put on an agenda uh, more than it had been uh, before. And, sense did the pandemic uh, support or refute your pre-existing hypotheses uh, with respect to biomarkers and such and, and delirium causation? Mm. So that's a great uh, question. So there was a talk, some talk in, in, in Covid that it, it could cause a cytokine storm uh, and uh, uh, and it was also some discussion, it, it was something special about COVID that, that led to more uh, delirium. So in my opinion, maybe it wasn't, probably it wasn't, because if you have a patient with infection and hypoxemia, you, you will be likely to develop delirium, even if it was not COVID that uh, caused it. So it didn't change anything. Uh, fundamentally in my understanding of delirium pathophysiology, but I think it opened some possibilities that it's easier to, to get research funded to uh, understand uh, delirium uh, pathophysiology. Mm. So it's really put the spotlight yeah. onto delirium and that mm. community. Mm. Um, so, so let, you know, we're hoping this is a podcast for a broad, eclectic um, audience, mm. some of them are going to be clinicians, some of them are going to be researchers, some of them are going to be have, have loved ones or experience to learn themselves. Um, with your um, body of research, are you able to give us some highlights around research that, that you know we can take a you know that listeners can take away with them? Mm. So I think so there is a lot of paradoxes readily and the first one is that it's it's not a paradox, it's a fact. Delirium is very common. Mm. And it's a, so maybe 
one in five, one of four patients in hospital will experience delirium. So it's such a major problem. And that's a paradox that it's not more researched. So it's severely understudied. And also the knowledge about delirium, it has been uh, not sufficient among healthcare personnel. And that bit has improved a lot, at least in Norway, last 10 or 15 years. But still in the general public, the knowledge about delirium is very limited. And that is a problem in itself. And it's a problem because since so many patients experience delirium while they are uh, acutely ill, when they are discharged, they are left with these strange memories of what happened in the, in the hospital. They were hallucinating. Maybe they saw dogs walking around in the ward, uh, delivering drugs to them. They saw a lot of ghosts in there. And since the general public, the knowledge about delirium in the general public is so poor, it's difficult to, for the family to uh, correct the memories. So, that's a big challenge in the future, I think, to, to increase the knowledge about delirium in the general public. Mm. That's a great, it's a great first paradox, that kind of tension, if you like, between how long we've known about delirium, how mm. serious it is, mm. and how literal cultural awareness exists um, out there. Um, can you think of any other paradoxes um, with regards to perhaps prevention and treatment with delirium too, and thinking a bit about kind of sort of the, the paradox that really kind of from the research it seems to be that there are so many studies that we do mm. into prevention, mm. but really what we need is treatment studies mm. in a sense. Those are the patients that we're really stuck with. I don't know if you can elaborate more on that other yeah. paradox if you like. Mm. That's that is definitely a paradox. So. Uh, Compared to the magnitude of the problem, there are still few drug trials done in delirium. It has been a lot more done in the last five or ten years in drug, uh, drug trials in delirium. And some of them are great, published in the best journals with great methods. But most of them are on prevention of delirium. Uh, so you give a drug and you see if it can prevent delirium. And those studies are obviously very important, but it is a paradox that in real life, we rarely give patient drugs in order to prevent delirium. The, the place the drugs have in delirium is to not treat, and I'm doing quotation mark here because there's no available drugs to treat delirium, but sometimes we use drugs to handle a chaotic situation. But there are fewer studies done on uh, giving drug, drugs to patients with ongoing delirium compared to patients uh, without delirium in order to in a, an attempt to, to prevent delirium. And that is a paradox. And the reason for this is that it's uh, methodologically much harder to do a treatment trial in delirium compared to a prevention uh, trial. And also, so, and also patients with delirium, they are often not able to consent themselves to be a part of a, a trial. And that is, of course, a challenge. And it's also much harder to pick endpoints in a treatment trial compared to a prevention trial. So on the on the subject of, of Richard Levy, you, you have a you're a uh, half-time geriatrician and half-time researcher. Can you tell us a little bit about what your average day looks like um, back in Norway? Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So yeah, half of my time I do clinical work. So I do orthogeriatrics. That is probably my uh, favorite topic because uh, I think the hip fracture patients are a fantastic, interesting patient group. They have a lot of delirium, a lot of dementia, and a lot of comorbidities, a lot of polypharmacy, and I really love that. So I, I do that uh, as much as I can, and I do acute geriatrics, uh, and also do a little bit of work at the memory clinic. So basically, I just my boss just decides to do clinical work these days and the rest of the days I have for research and teaching. So I teach medical students about uh, delirium and then I have some days uh, just for research. Hmm. Uh, can, you, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about the research itself? Yeah, so, so my main research interest is on uh, biomarkers in delirium, specifically cerebrospinal fluid biomarkers. And there we uh, measure some kind of molecule in this CSF from uh, patients with delirium, compare them with patients without delirium, and see if we can uh, find a pattern. And that is not immediately translatable to clinical work, but the, the, the very important thing here is to, to get the CSF samples. And that would be impossible, I think, if it hadn't been for me working in the clinic. To, to be in close contact with the clinicians, the anesthesiologists, the uh, orthopedics. So, and also, uh, since I do clinical work myself, I understand how a hospital works. Yeah. It's a really complex uh, working environment. And it's not, if you just put on a, write on a post-it lab, uh, remember to take CSF uh, and just place it on the wall and expect that will happen, you will not get one single sample. So you need to understand which people you need to talk to and uh, yeah, to, to, to be able to include patients in the clinical work. So in that sense, the clinical work and the research work. Yes. Yeah. You, you mentioned it's not yet translatable, but mm. with your with your work in, in biomarkers of delirium, what what do you envisage, what could be the outcomes in the future in terms of interventions and, and treatments that might have seen fruition from your work? What, what, what are the possible, what, what do you see as the possible future treatments for delirium? Well, so in general, it's a big problem, of course, if you want to have an effective drug in delirium, that we, we don't know much about pathophysiology, we don't understand exactly the mechanisms of what is going on in the brain. And since we don't know that bit, it's hard to find a drug that works. So, uh, so by studying biomarkers, I think biomarkers is a great way to get information about the mechanism in delirium pathophysiology. So that long-term uh, impact of what we are doing now the dream, of course, would be uh, effective uh, 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 drug could be uh, discovered. And having said that, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, I, I personally, I don't believe there's a final common pathway in delirium, that you will, you will not be able to find one drug that can 
prevent or treat all causes of delirium. But uh, uh, maybe some cases there will be some patient can benefit from a future. Uh, I think it's really nice the way that you describe that. You've spoken about paradoxes, but what you're saying here is looking for synergies. And I think what's really lovely about the work that the the Oslo Delirium Research Group that you need does is it brings together different elements such as you know the cascade study looking at both biomarkers and epidemiological data and by combining these you know different angles we might be able to come up with those treatments and, and, and other understandings as well and I can see the synergy that you're talking there about between um, the clinical practice in their or Jerry's and marrying that with the biomarker interest too as well so it's a really it's a really clever kind of Approach that you could. Can you just tell us a bit more about the um, Oslo Research Group? How old are you? The group that is on you. The group, so the group was founded in 2008 by Professor Torgar Brunviller. He is still active in the group. He is the senior author on the Cascade study. It was recently published in Lancet uh, Longitudinal Health Review or something like that. Uh, and I've been the leader since 2016. And the group has been growing steadily. Uh, we have uh, several people working on biomarkers, including uh, myself. But then we have, uh, have other people more interested in uh, understanding how delirium impacts the risk of future uh, dementia. And we have also people like Björn-Erik Nerland, uh, who is doing uh, studies uh, on drug trials and delirium. And uh, it's, it has been uh, developing over time, but now I think we are at a good stage. We have several different projects within the group and uh, they benefit from each other. So for the studies looking at so the Maria Krogsat did the study on the Cascade study, looking at how delirium impacted uh, long-term risk of cognitive uh, decline. It was a very clever design, and she put a lot of effort into assessing the patients cognitively at the baseline before they get acutely ill, and then follow them into the hospital and assess them for delirium, and then tested them again afterwards. But uh, since she is in a group with a lot of focus on biomarkers, we convinced her that she should also collect blood samples from the same patients. And now we can, and I think that was a great bonus to that study because now we could also, can we look, she, she showed that the delirium was an independent risk factor for future cognitive decline, but we also could see that this was linked to uh, increase in neurofibrillant flight, which is a neuronal damage uh, marker. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's great work, and it's almost something that Christopher Nolan would be, um, uh, you'd be envious of to be able to go back in time almost and, and work out whether you know dementia or not, and to be able to do those assessments before they get the delirium. So, um, so, so great work. Is it? Is it? And uh, are there any of your? Uh, and in terms of your research um, as a, as a group, is there anything? Are there is there one bit of research which? The outcome which surprised you the most, and on one bit of research that you're most proud of in terms mm. of actually the process or the outcome. 
so yeah, I have a personal favorite biomarker, mm. uh, which is called uh, Q-linic uh, acid. That, that's that, that's biomarker of the week, everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that's probably at the time the work I'm most proud of. It's so we have been collecting CSF biomarkers since two thousand nine. Actually, it takes a long, long time to to get these samples, but now we have six hundred um, uh, of them. And together with a colleague in Bergen, Lasse Gil, we measured the more, uh, metabolites of the culinary pathway. Uh, which was identified as a, a very interesting pathway in, in delirium because it's switched on during acute stress and some of many of these metabolites can cross the blood brain barrier and some of them are neuroactive, some of them are considered neuroprotective, other neurotoxic uh, and uh, we found that uh, one of them, culinic acid, was strongly associated with delirium it was strongly associated with neurofindelament light, the other marker I briefly mentioned, that is a neuronal damage marker, and also uh, a strong uh, predictor of uh, death at uh, 12 months. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that would probably be the work I'm most proud of. Also, also, I imagine being able to pronounce them was also protective against delirium. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know why the biomarkers become more and more difficult to. To, to, to pronounce and so that's a, that's very exciting uh, work uh, and uh, is 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 uh, and what, what was your work that was you most surprised by uh, you know, that that um, research outcome that was or, or a result that that, that you thought was counterintuitive. Mm, so maybe that was my own PhD project. Uh, we tried to prevent delirium by uh, treating the patients patients in the geriatric ward. Uh, so this was an orthogeriatric trial and that was a surprise and at the time a disappointment that we were not able to reduce delirium rates in the orthogeriatric uh, ward. So that was probably uh, a surprise and a disappointment. But in retrospect I understand the reasons for this, was maybe the usual care was better than expected, uh, and also at the time we didn't have, have any experience with treating hip fracture patients in the acute geriatric uh, uh, ward. So, and also at the time, this was the first orthogeriatric ward at our hospital, and even if the trial was negative, it was a starting point. And now there is orthogeriatrics at that hospital and other hospitals. So it turned out to be a success, but uh, at the time it was surprising and I was a bit sad. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is difficult, but to use a baseball analogy, you, you can't hit home runs every time you're at the plate. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's what you learn from it and what goes forward. And it's a great study and you can read that one in the BMC Medicine Journal, is that correct? Yeah, that um, correct. absolutely. And it's often, you know, the negative studies that we learn the most for. If I could just swing the discussion in a slightly different direction, one of the other hats that you have, as well as being a geriatrician and leader of the Oslo Research Lab, is that you are the current president of the European Delirium Association. The current president in a long line of illustrious dear <laughs> so congratulations. Um, I was wondering if you could just 
talk to the audience a little bit about the um, directions or the vision that you, you have for the organisation. And these organisations, I must say, over the last 15 years have been absolutely instrumental in pushing up delirium awareness and research. You can chart the rise in research publications on PubMed mm. to the development of society. So well done for your stewardship here, but just interested to learn more about your, your, your vision. Yeah. Yeah, and this leads me to another paradox, actually, because as you said, this uh, organization, I think the EDA was founded in 2006 or 2007. Yeah. And that's also a paradox that you have this massive health problem affecting one out of four, one out of five hospital patients. And it's not been an association for that condition before uh, yeah, 15 years ago. Uh, no, we have it, and as you said, it has been really important, but still, I think I'm surprised that we grow at such a slow speed. So at our uh, meetings at the European Delirium Association, we have maybe 200, 300 attendees. If you, you would expect thousands of people coming to these meetings. Uh, since the magnitude of the problem is so huge. So I think that is a major goal for me and the organization to grow. that to, to grow, to, 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 that delirium should have the focus it deserves uh, given the magnitude of, of the problem. I think that's the, that growth in itself is, uh, is a goal and also that we have more attendees that are not uh, doctors. So all yeah. doctors are welcome, of course, but uh, more nurses, more physiotherapists, more occupational therapists are very welcome to our meetings and our society. Mm. And that may be another paradox, the um, fact that those who are closest to the patients are often not the doctors, um, mm. but you know, the, the nurses, the health professionals and know the best treatments. But yet their voice may not be the strongest, and so that's what we need to promote. Anyway. Oh, well, we were having a chat on our, on our way here uh, over a, a, a small uh, libation and coffee. Um, and caffeinated chai. And, and uh, so, we're, you know, we were talking about delirium, the message about delirium reaching beyond the hospital and the health system and to uh, those maybe who have been affected by delirium in some way, either personally or loved ones or society as a whole, because there seems to be very little knowledge about it. How, how do we reach out to, uh, to the rest of the populace and, and, and educate and support? Mm. Uh, so that is uh, definitely a personal goal of mine, to, to increase the knowledge about delirium in the general uh, public. And I think one great way is to get delirium survivors to share their story uh, in in media and delirium if, if you as, as when you first if you get the journalist interested as long as, and then you explain to the journalist the magnitude of the problem they're very happy to write about it and also it's so easy to write a tabloid story about delirium because it's the nightmares the ghosts um, uh, so I'm surprised that there's not more delirium stories out there. But we have some great ones in Norway now. Uh, uh, they have shared their stories, and this is uh, has made an impact, I think. 
Of, of course, the other way is to invite the president of the EDA onto our inaugural po podcast. So let's get the message out there. <laughs> yeah, the podcasts are great. And uh, if I'm right, this is the first delirium podcast. And that is also a crazy paradox, I think. Exactly. Uh, that is, should. I think there are probably, probably more songs with the word delirium <laughs> in them, like Eddie Goldings, yeah. than podcasts yeah. around delirium yeah. itself. But to talk about patient experience, I think that's absolutely right. We need to capture that, and then I would refer listeners to an excellent poem that's been recited by Mark Hudson, um, uh, who is a uh, survivor of ICU delirium uh, mm. on the internet, um, uh, and it's very articulate and very powerful. It really captures the trauma um, of delirium as it is. I'm just going to just take the um, conversation a little bit deeper and, and, and think about really concepts of lumping and splitting and, and hang that onto the paradox arguments that have been a theme of this, this podcast. So, you know, one, one, one argument as to why we might not have made progress because we've known that delirium's been around since Romans described for so long is that we have that very unitary understanding of delirium and, and maybe we need to actually be much more refined and think about you know Mark Holden's written about you know delirious pseudo deliriums and there might be a subset of delirium within psychiatry that require very different treatments as such so that kind of sort of the splitting approach or the delirium in ICU is very different to the delirium that you see in surgery which is different to palliative care so maybe if we had that more refined approach we might make more progress and maybe that also says to me speaks to why we've not been able to grow as much as a society because we're all very eclectic lots of different backgrounds ICU specialists and psychiatrists geriatricians not so many neurologists but that's okay um, but you know but we if we actually go back to our homes and look at delirium in these contexts I'm being controversial here because we need to increase awareness and um, uh, Go back to our homes is that a way forward maybe we need to sort of in the same way as we've split cvas down strokes down or uh, we split dementias do you think that's the future or i think you need to do both so for biomarker work definitely the splitting strategy would be great that is it's more you're more likely to find a specific biomarker if you have a more homogeneous group for example hyperactive delirium in patients without uh, pre-existing dementia. The problem is, of course, that then it's, then it's even harder to collect samples. Uh, so that is it's definitely a goal, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's some years into the future. And also the lumping together strategy, it's also good because uh, uh, the so I understand. So if you if you so the DSM five criteria for delirium, which is often used mm -hmm. in research, a lot of a lot of different types can fit under that umbrella. Uh, uh, but still, uh, if if you even if, if you do that, you can you can see that delirium is an independent risk factor for future dementia for mortality for all for many different uh, negative uh, 
outcomes. So it, it has still a value. So, in, but in the future, you, you have to do both. Um, as we are growing, we can hope to see more splitting. Uh, uh, Lump approach by <laughs> splitting and lumping together. Yeah. 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 Saying. It's not voluntary, it's not dichotomous. No. Okay, mm -hmm. all right. Mm -hmm. I think that's it's a debate to be had and, and to be looked at. I think you're right. It's um, I mean, the other thing which I struggle with, and uh, together with um, Fred Graham and Michael Reed, we've written about is how something as complex of delirium can fit into something as simple as a guideline mm. um, as well. So that's Okay, um, I'm aware that there's lots of young listeners listening to this. Um, do you have any advice for any early researchers? Uh, so, myself, I didn't start to do research until I was a couple of years into my clinical uh, work. Um, so, uh, and I remember when I was a medical student, I was a bit stressed. Because I always thought I would do research, but I somehow never started. I did some few few projects, and I was stressed, and I thought, oh no, it's too late for me. Uh, but it's not too late, even if you have done clinics for years, you, you should definitely, you can do a lot of research. So, uh, and it's getting more and more interesting, I think, the longer you do it. Uh, and it's a perfect way, at least in Norway, to combine family life with um, working because you have more flexibility as a researcher than you have as a clinician. I shouldn't be the only motivation, of course, but it's a nice add-on. On, on, on the same note, if you were to, able to go back in time at the to the beginning of your research journey, what's the one bit of advice you'd have given yourself? Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm quite satisfied where I am now and also where our group is. Uh, one thing I liked from the very beginning in, uh, in the delirium community is that uh, it's easy to collaborate with people. It's not, it's competitive, but not ugly. Com Competitiveness. So, and, and that's something uh, uh, I embrace, and I uh, would also give advice to a younger version of myself that just collaborate as much as uh, possible. That's a really good point, actually. Um, as a community, you know, we're united by the fact that we're all keen to learn more about delirium, but we're all different because of our clinical backgrounds, and so we're fantastic to collaborate with and I'm always amazed at just how strong the community is and, and, and it's not really turf wars, it's more kind of sort of what can we learn from our differences to push forward against delirium, so that's excellent. Yeah. Okay. We should plug the, um, the upcoming conferences as well while we're at it. The Australasian Delirium Association, the European Delirium Association, the dates to follow. Yeah, that's the 2nd, 3rd and 4th of November in sunny Sydney. Um, Absolutely, and actually one of the things which I was very lucky to attend was at the start of June in Sydney we held um, an Australasian Delirium Society with um, Gideon Kaplan and Anita held the largest gathering of delirium pathophysiologists ever and we're very fortunate to hear from Leave 
um, and others such as Rob, Rob Sanders and Monique Ford as well. Just wondering if you had any reflections for that day. It had a real buzz around it in the room and um, hmm. so we can't capture it and share it more. Yeah, the first, uh, another paradox, <laughs> that this was the first delirium pathophysiology, but not the first pathophysiology meeting. We have had delirium pathophysiology meetings at the European Delirium Association as well. But this was one of the biggest one. Um, it was great, but it was uh, perfect. It was um, that it's not more of these uh, uh, these uh, meetings. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think as we 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 already touched to the the problem of of uh, the, the, that we have mostly doctors to the uh, delirium conferences, and I think a problem with that is that if you are doing uh, if you are a clinician, if you are a nurse or occupational, occupational therapist, to, to attend a meeting on, or a session on CSF biomarkers, it's not very interesting for you. And I understand why you can prioritize that. So, and, so that's the reason why these pathophysi dedicated pathophysiology meetings are so valuable, because then the nerds can get together and just discuss the fibroid molecules, and then maybe we can leave the broader mm. aspects. Uh, for the, the the other meetings, but maybe it's easier to attract larger crowds. Uh, and then when we are when we are growing more, we can have it's easier to have parallel sessions that are more dedicated to to pathophysiology. I think what was wonderful about that that sunny day in Sydney um, was that it wasn't just biomarkers, was it? We heard about. You know, Rob Sanders' favourite neuroimaging technique, diffusion tractor, um, DTI studies, and we heard Mike Board's EEGs, and it was really sort of bringing together all of the different kind of sort of different lenses that we have to look at the pathophysiology mm. and, 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 and trying to draw conclusions from kind of the different approaches that we had. And we also heard um, uh, from the dementia world too, which is really useful. Maybe that's an area that we need to push into more, you know, learn from, from other fields. And I think Levin has a template for that, don't you? Because as you, as you talked about in your, in your earlier presentation, you were sitting opposite from the, from the dementiologists in the, in the hallway, and eventually when you, when you got together, you realised that, that you've got Commonality. good, good commonalities and you can prepare notes, and maybe the delirium world and the, and the dementia world needs to, the researchers need to get to get together some more to see what, what, uh, what, what uh, synergies there are in the mm. research. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So I'm surprised there is not even more interest from the dementia world into delirium because delirium is such a strong independent risk factor for future uh, dementia. And we are interested in the same biomarkers. So yeah, I think definitely that is uh, a topic that uh, that's a potential for a lot more collaboration. Mm. It was good to thank um, it was good to thank Gideon really for convening it, and you know he's a master pathophysiologist with his blue code work too. Look, the last question I want to ask you: We've spoken about the conferences that we've got in Australia, and um, I'd like you just to sort of explain to us why we should be going to Birmingham um, 
this year for the European Delirium Association. We've obviously heard a lot from Thomas Jackson around the curries and, the, <laughs> and other sides. And I think actually Eamon's brought on the idea and he might have got himself a ticket over to I Birmingham can't. anyway. I but so yeah, it. there was a cricket match there yesterday in Manchester and a bit of rain there. But why should we be coming to why should we come into the EDA meeting? And uh, it's a great meeting, but let's hear it from the president. Yeah, so the EDA meetings, they are uh, um, very friendly. So as I said, we we hope to, to grow, but uh, now we are uh, two, three, maybe 400 people. So it's a, a, a nice, friendly atmosphere. We will uh, present the US studies. We will even have a even uh, pathophysiology session the day before the main conference starts. So uh, September 6th, to September 8th in uh, Birmingham. You can still uh, sign up for, for the meeting. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank, thank you very much. You've been a fantastic um, inaugural podcast guest for our the series. Best. Best so far, number <laughs> yeah. one. Right. Top of the tree. So, look, it's a real pleasure talking to you and to hear about the impressive work coming out of the Oslo Delirium Group to get your insights around the European Delirium Association and really to get understanding of tips for new researchers to, to the field too. So thank you very much, Leave. I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Australia and, and that you join many of the listeners in Birmingham. Thank right. you. Thank you for having me.